If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here, while these visions did appear. Wait, 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 wait. That's at the end of the play, though, so are we already done? No, we just need a good quote for the beginning. So we do have to talk about this, do we? You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas Hawk. And I'm Christian Schneider. Hello. And this week we read what my dear historical friend Samuel Pepys called the most insipid, ridiculous play that he ever saw in his life. A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. It's one of the most popular comedies by the Bard himself, but it seems to be also one that has taken the most criticism for being exactly like Pepys said, trivial and somehow not as deep as some of the other plays Shakespeare wrote. It's basically about two sets of young people from Athens going into the woods, falling asleep, being bewitched by fairies, falling in love with the wrong person, hilarity ensues, and then by the end the fairies resolve everything, everyone gets married and the fairies bless their marriage beds. We shouldn't also forget that there is a group of, what are they called? Mechanicals. M mechanicals. Um, basically craftsmen who are trying to put on a show for the marriage of the Duke of Athens. Do not be fooled by the name mechanicals, though. They are not actually transformers. A shame, really. Anyways, the play was probably written between 1590 and 1596. And it's considered, along with The Tempest, to be one of the few plays where Shakespeare didn't just steal a plot or a play wholesale, but it seems to be partly inspired by the fairy topic of Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. But for the most part, it seems to be an original plot by Shakespeare himself. As we said, the reception history is kind of mixed, that often it was criticized for its seemingly trivial content, but at the same time, it endured and its fairy element seems to have inspired quite a few theatre people to play with special effects to kind of put this fairy world on stage. So let us start right with one of the biggest problems of the play. This interesting mythology you've already mentioned is really intriguing. We have Oberon, the lord of the fairies, and Titania, his wife, so they have kind of fallen out. And then there's, of course, also Puck, Oberon's servant. And there's a speech about Puck where he is described as this wry sprite who sometimes lures travelers the wrong way or sometimes skims the milk so he cannot make butter from it anymore. And that is so incredibly intriguing. And then it's just not followed up on. Well, I think Puck is still a really interesting character. He's kind of the link, I'd say, between the fairy world and the world of the mortals. We have, obviously, Titania falling in love with Bottom, the ass-headed craftsman, but... <laughs> ass-headed. But basically, that is treated as a giant joke. Whereas Puck's treatment of humans as kind of playthings, that is the connecting element, basically. This fairy world seems to be rather removed, for the most part, from the amorous woes of these young Athenians. And it's only Puck who's kind of the... Yeah connector. He's the one basically bringing these worlds together, basically instigating the plot. 
But everything that the fairies do is so boring, really. They make people fall in love with this magic flower where they drop some of the juice of the flower onto people's eyes. And that's really all they do. We hear that Puck can do incredible things. He he says he can put a girdle around the earth in 40 minutes, which is a strangely specific time. But it also, of course, conjures imagery of the time of discovery of Francis Drake, who had put a girdle around the earth in several years, just uh, a couple of uh, years before the play was written. But then he just goes off stage and he comes back and we never see any more effects. We do have that in other Shakespeare plays and later Shakespeare plays like The Tempest. But I think the effect that the fairies have on these mortal lives is still an immense one. It's maybe not as global as might be on in The Tempest, but even in The Tempest, the most central element is this notion of romance, of love, of Ferdinand falling in love with Miranda. And here it's much more prevalent. What at least the young Athenians are all about is love in all its varieties. And obviously Shakespeare treats love as yeah, something capricious, something that is not stable, even though in the end, of course, they all get married to the right partners, etc. and so on. But I think that is obviously the main interpretation of these Athenian woods. It's a kind of magical place for experimentation, of trying out new things in love. Um, obviously, for the time, that was still a quite clearly heterosexual thing. But still, the effect Puck and the flower have on these young lovers is an immense one. I mean, just imagine the two young men fighting over Helena, Hermia, all left alone everyone's unhappy. So you might say that for them, it's quite traumatic. And for them, they wouldn't say that it's boring at all. You just said that, of course, all the sexual experimentation and sexual adventure is still heterosexual. But there is an interesting degree of non-heterosexual sexuality in this. For example, in the beginning, where Lysander and Demetrius fight over Hermia, Lysander tells Demetrius, well, you have her father's love, why don't you marry him? And then also, of course, when uh, Titania is in love with Bottom and has her fairies attend on him, he calls them men, he calls them masters, and uh, he has them sort of scratch his head, and it's all a bit uh, erotically charged, you might say. And obviously, the most prevalent example is the young Indian boy that Oberon and Titania argue about. So here, we definitely have an element of at least homoerotic love in some way, however you might describe it. So yeah, the fairies at least are a bit more free-roaming in their love and their sexuality. That young Indian boy is another really interesting aspect because he is incredibly important to the plot. He's essentially the MacGuffin that makes Titania and Oberon fall out and then uh, that is why Oberon has this uh, whole crazy plan of getting the flower and making Titania fall in love with something hideous. But he never appears on stage. He is very, very important, but we never see him. Yeah, as you said, he's a MacGuffin. We don't really need him for that. What we need is, again, a kind of instigator for the fight between Oberon and Titania. But he's another example of a very interesting mythological concept, this changeling that fairies would take these children and carry them off to their realms. That would be much more interesting than whether person A loves person B or person C or person D. But then you'd leave out basically most of the human element in that play. 
The fairies, as they are treated, are obviously quite human. They are jealous. They have their own arguments. In the end, they come together again and they are portrayed as, yeah, relatively harmless, to put it that way. And they find great amusement in the humans and watching them and manipulating them. Exactly. And that already brings us to a more alien um, side of these fairies. I mean, the play takes place in Athens, so we have this kind of Greek mythology background. But even the mechanicals, and frankly, even if they're not Transformers, with names like that, they should really be steampunk, at least. Even the mechanicals, they're basically craftsmen from Shakespeare's time. And the same is true for the world of fairies. It's English folklore. Robin Goodfellow is an English folklore figure that is taken up here. And even though Oberon and Titania have these un-English names, this world of the fae, of the fairy, is an element that would have been well-known to an audience in Shakespeare's time, and not necessarily one that was all positive. If Puck is out to curdle your milk and steal your stuff, that's not very good. And as I said, the effect the fairies have on the humans, the young lovers, but also the craftsmen, is not necessarily a positive one. It's kind of traumatic. And we need this presence of an alien world, but not because it's interesting in itself. We need it because we need it to be in contact with the human world. We need it to make this human world more chaotic, more interesting, but also more traumatic in its own way. And how these human characters deal with that is, I think, more interesting than any kind of magical thing going on. The very humanness of the fairies and their connection to humans is an interesting contrast to what we talked about in the last episode with Dr. Manhattan, who, similarly to Oberon and Titania, is immensely powerful, but instead of enjoying manipulating the humans around him like they do, he just considers them aunts. So maybe they are the kid with the magnifying glass who enjoy playing with these little ants that are so far beneath them. You've already alluded to the fact that there are some pretty grim themes in the play. Considering that it's considered a comedy, um, I've just made a list here. Uh, right at the beginning, we have forced marriages. Mm-hmm. We have colonialism with the Indian boy. We have the threat of execution if you refuse to marry the man your, husband, your father chooses. We have slavery. So we have all these fairly inappropriate topics in a comedy. Is that just because they're removed from us in time by 400 years? No. I think even at the time, Aegeus's very strict marriage rules would have been considered something, yeah, something inappropriate. Um, and in the end, obviously, Lysander gets his Hermia and Demetrius and Helena get together. So this strictness, at least in the beginning, and the danger of breaking the rules and risking execution there... That is seen, I think, even in the play as something fairly grim. But then again, you need this strict framework to then change into the experimenting world of the forest, where it's kind of an extreme position. So on the one hand, you have the strict court, you have Athens, where the marriage between Hippolyta and Theseus is to be celebrated. But as you mentioned, it's a forced marriage. Yeah, he says he wooed her with his sword which is a great joke, but uh, anyway. <clears throat> but also alludes to a very interesting story from Greek mythology, which the audience probably would have known, but uh, I would have liked to see that on stage, maybe. 
Yes, but it's at least it's not all celebration and happiness in the beginning. And especially with the danger that comes from Aegeus's complaint about the wrong lover for his daughter and so on, and the unhappiness of the young lovers in the beginning. That is there, but then changes to the forest. And as we see, we have the same kind of unhappiness there with Oberon and Titania. So the forest is the place where these roles, this strictness becomes kind of loosened. And people try new configurations, people try new roles and constellations. And it's also extreme. As I said, it's traumatic, it's chaotic. And for the audience, certainly chaotic in an amusing way, because things are turned topsy-turvy. But in the social order, in the end, you need kind of return to stability. And this stability then is still so much more playful, so much lighter, so much more cheerful than this strict thing in the beginning. But even this merriment and entertainment still goes on a bit, doesn't it? The end of the play is basically this play within the play that the mechanicals were rehearsing before. And it's just the mechanicals acting really badly and not doing a very good job and the nobles slagging them off. And that is entertaining, I think, for a bit. But then after a while, you just say, yeah, yeah, I've got it now. You are so much better than them. Please move on. I agree. Maybe that this end bit is a bit too long. And I think in many performances nowadays, it's it's kept very short. Not in the two performances by school theater groups that I have seen. <laughs> well, school theater groups never know when to stop. But I think even that bit is important because... It's a nice piece of meta-theatre. As the audience in a theatre, we have been watching what was going on before. And now the characters that were there entertaining us in their ways are watching another play. And they are commenting upon it. They are laughing about it. Basically, they're not taking it seriously. But they seem to have forgotten that a few scenes before, they were the ones behaving quite ridiculously. Under a spell or not, they were the ones who were basically... Yeah, the laughing stock of us. So I think in that respect, it's very important that we as the audience are kind of reminded. For now, these characters are kind of back in control. But before we saw them in the forest and how ridiculously they behaved there, not better in any way than the mechanicals acting out this supposedly dramatic story of Pyramus and Thisbe. So it's a reminder for us, for the audience, that we ourselves might sometimes behave quite ridiculously, quite chaotically, especially when it comes to love and sexuality. I think that piece of meta-theater is, if not necessary, then at least very, very fitting for this play, at least, where it's all about chaos and restoring order to a certain degree, at least. And to be fair, I did enjoy the scenes of the rehearsals of the mechanicals, because uh, we both have done our fair bit of amateur dramatics and uh, let's just say everyone who has some experience in acting with amateurs knows these people they may have lived 400 years ago but they are still around all the time especially bottom the guy who thinks he can do everything who thinks he can do everything better than everyone else who wants to play all the parts and who actually is just horrible i think i've played with a few guys like that Wait, wait, wait. No, what, no, what no, 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 no,
is we've focused so far, I have focused mainly on this aspect of sexuality. And usually, as I said, it's read that way, that Midsummer Night's Dream is basically a kind of sex comedy in some way. But one aspect that I found interesting is that you might also consider it a comedy about class, about a kind of political treatment of certain questions. Yeah, as I said, the upper class is making fun of the lower classes. You might argue that, exactly. I think here this inclusion of the mechanicals is an interesting factor, that you have them as representatives of the lower class, but in the forest at least, the young noble Athenians are just as crazy and confused and bewildered by what is going on. And these young Athenians also keep lying down and falling asleep all over the place all the fucking time. Hey, it's hard being a young Athenian, okay? Yeah, but still, uh, they're just like... Oh my god, I don't know my way, I'm going to die. I'll sleep. Yeah, it's it's a bit incredulous. But I think this class aspect is still interesting, that you might consider the forest also as a space of experimentation for sexual roles, but also roles in society. Bottom is just a craftsman. <laughs> Bottom. <laughs> and... He is treated like a king by Titania, the queen of the fairies. And obviously for us, that's something ridiculous. But in that moment, it's something that is true, at least for him and for her. And when he wakes up, he has that great speech, the one moment where he is not treated as a ridiculous lower class guy. He has that great speech about the dream he had and how crazy that was and how real it felt. And... Not only is that a great description of dreams and the kind of unsettling effect they might have on us, but also this kind of notion of, yeah, he's just a craftsman, but even he has this shred of dignity, of noble dignity in him. But if you want to talk about uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream as a portrait of society and class, we should also talk about A Midsummer Night's Dream as a portrait of gender relations, because... Well, obviously, in the beginning, they are quite harsh, and Hermia is threatened with execution if she doesn't accept her father's authority and marries the man he chooses. Do you think that the gender relations improve at all throughout the play? I'm not too sure. I mean, as I said, in the end, the kind of bringing together of the couple is considered to be more cheerful. But the women were portrayed throughout the play. Hermia and Helena is not really improving. The best thing we can say is basically that they are just as foolish as the men. And at least they're not as aggressively foolish as Lysander and Demetrius. Demetrius especially is really playing out his machismo all of the time. And I think with Helena, I always found her to be an interesting character, this kind of jilted woman who is trying to, yeah, aggressively woo Demetrius, which is an interesting aspect. Although at the time, and in the text of the play, that is also seen as something out of the ordinary and something not wished for. You just said that you considered Helena an interesting character. Do you think there are really characters in this play, or are they all just ciphers? I don't think they're just ciphers. I think especially Bottom and to a certain degree maybe also um, Titania are certainly considered with a certain depth. But you're right, the young Athenians at least are to a certain degree maybe interchangeable, but they have a certain depth when it comes to their constellation, when it comes to the notion of who they love, what they would do for that love. So Demetrius as the more aggressive one, Lysander as the one that is... No. 
I didn't really catch any difference between Demetrius and Lysander. I think basically the it's just that he's the one less aggressive. So you're right about that. The characters don't have a depth of their own, but they do have a depth of interaction. And I think that is the focus of the play. And as I said, Helena becomes interesting because she's in a specific role. She's the one jilted in the beginning. And then she's the one who's wooed by two men. And her reaction is interesting as well, that she's yeah. that she's not glad that Demetrius is suddenly in love with her, but that she's well aware that this is some sort of sick joke. Yeah, she was actually the only one of the young Athenians that I found interesting, especially exactly because of that, what you said, that she starts out as a jilted woman, then suddenly everyone is in love with her and she becomes really aggressive. And uh, I just realized, actually, uh, just looking through the play again, that first, when she follows Demetrius into the forest and she tries to woo him, she compares herself to a dog and says, uh, you can beat me, you can abuse me, but I will still follow you, which was a very common comparison that the ideal woman was as loyal as a dog. Uh, and then later, uh, when she thinks, oh, you're playing a sick joke on me, she calls Demetrius and Lysander dogs and curs. So that is actually a very interesting uh, development in her character. So I, I, I would sort of uh, take the statement that there are no interesting characters in this back and say there's one interesting character, at least in this. Well, as I said, at least Bottom also has a depth of his own. Maybe it's a kind of ridiculous depth at times, but other characters from Shakespeare's comedies have that kind of ridiculous depth. Falstaff, for example, gains his own kind of weird dignity, although he is a laughingstock for most of his appearances in Shakespeare's plays. So I would say there's not just ciphers in this play. There is some interesting characters, but even more interesting is their kind of configuration. I have already alluded to the fact that Many people consider this a kind of bland and superficial portrayal of love. That is actually a fault I didn't find in the play, because I think it explores some really interesting uh, dark sides of love. But uh, also these are sort of explored in the beginning and then dropped towards the end so everyone can get married and be happy. But I think it's indicative when Hermia swears her love to Lysander, not just by uh, Cupid's bow and his arrows and Venus's doves, but also by that fire which burned the Carthage queen when the false Trojan under sail was seen, by all the vows that ever men have broke, in number more than ever woman spoke. This is very portentous. It sort of implies that things might go horribly, horribly wrong, and then they go horribly, horribly right for everyone. I think if just one person would have been kind of crestfallen at the end, then that bittersweet note would have made it all the more enthralling. I agree that for the characters, at least, there's no joke in this play. There are some very dark aspects and some yeah, kind of brutal aspects as well. The fate they think might await them and this notion of the forest as a threatening place as well. It's not just all laughs and giggles and sexual experimentation. It's a place of darkness and being far away from home. It's interesting, I think, in this sense to compare it to another Shakespeare comedy that takes this escape to the forest, namely As You Like It. There the forest really doesn't have that much of a dark component and the young love doesn't have this bitter or threatening um, notion that seems to be rather coming from something like Romeo and Juliet, for example. 
as you like it is in that respect much more harmless but at the same time as you like it is much more intelligent about it it treats itself less seriously and is very self-reflexive when it comes to the tropes and the discourse of love and still manages to portray love in its ridiculousness as something to aspire for and something great. And maybe there I would say A Midsummer Night's Dream doesn't really manage that. It manages to portray the folly of love, certainly, and the kind of experimentation, but making really believe that Lysander and Hermia or Demetrius and Helena belong together because they've gone through certain things. No, 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 I don't think so. I was also reminded of As You Like It, maybe because both of us were in a production of As You Like It three years ago. Don't tell them our secrets. <laughs> but actually, I realized something that I think The Dream does better than As You Like It. Both plays have several parallel plot threads, but in As You Like It, you can actually remove some of them without great consequence, as we did in our production. We completely cut out the country couple and nobody really missed them. Whereas here in the dream, you cannot cut out the mechanicals because bottom becomes so important for the uh, Titania Oberon plot. You can maybe cut them down a bit and maybe not include their tedious several-act play, as it seems. Uh, but still, everything hangs together a bit more coherently. That is also maybe why A Midsummer Night's Dream is such a successful role model for these kinds of stories. People going from the city to somewhere in the countryside, somewhere outside of the usual norms, and going through trials and tribulations of some kind, but then in the end finding their role sexually or socially. That has become such a prevalent topos of many stories. And As You Like It hasn't. And maybe As You Like It is more intelligent and more self-reflexive, and I love it to bits. But A Midsummer Night's Dream has this kind of primal appeal to us, this kind of everything fits together, everything is turned chaotic, but at the same time, everything is connected in a chaotic way, and everything in the end will come together. I think A Midsummer Night's Dream has endured more than As You Like It, because you can put lots of women in skimpy fairy outfits and have them dance around on stage. That's actually something that Peeps man mentions as well that he did enjoy the sight of these handsome women. To quote another podcasting director, Don DeMello, bring out the girls. But, yeah, why not? It has a sense of extra Lolita. It has a sense of spectacle, certainly. And, hey, if that still works nowadays, why not? I think it also has the depth to still find new meanings and new complexities in it nowadays so it's not just a trivial insipid sex comedy but i think it is actually worth discussing as we did today did you laugh while you read it i think i actually did but not because of some joke more about the notion of these guys just running around the forest and it's it's more laughing about people than laughing about situations or wordplay just the fact that we had to go to the very end of the play to find a great quote to present to you shows that when it comes to language, this may not be Shakespeare's best play. I also laughed, but only once, and that was the scene where Demetrius wakes up and he has been bewitched to now also love Helena. That was very funny to me, but mainly because I remembered a production I saw of the play last year and remembered how funny that was. 
So I would say it is something that has a lot of potential, but it's not a good play to be read. I mean, if you are going to read it, it's not going to set you back a lot. I read it in an afternoon today, and that is not that much time. But I would really advise you to go and find a good production of it. Maybe Shakespeare in the Park. This is one of the perfect plays to be performed outside. Find a nice production of it where people have sort of trimmed down the bits that are a bit of a drag to sit through. And just sit back and enjoy that. That already sounds like our judgments. So your judgment seems to be it's okay, but not the best. It's not as bad as I thought. I think I can agree with that judgment. I think Midsummer Night's Dream has a bad reputation and it's not deserved. It is surprisingly complex when it comes to breaking up social roles. It is surprisingly complex when it comes to this almost nihilistic view of relationships and love and the folly of love. And I think it is surprisingly complex when it comes to a character like Bottom, who, as I said, has a strange dignity, even though he's this kind of lower-class comic relief sidekick. You might say he's the bottom of most of the jokes. No, I wouldn't say that. But, yeah, I still think that A Midsummer Night's Dream is very Shakespearean in that it mixes many different things and does so quite beautifully. Maybe you laugh about it, but that's not the point. What you should take away from it is this notion that yeah, the world is a funny place. And you are acting quite ridiculously there at times as well. So, huh, who are you to judge? Just a last little note about that nice Shakespearean thing. Uh, at one point, Oberon says, Ah, here they come. I am invisible. Which is so Shakespearean because of the needs of the stage, of course, over it couldn't be invisible. So he just says, I'm invisible. Just have to believe in magic. That's all. It's like, like he's a child that closes his eyes. I can't see you. You can't see me. That would be actually a, a really interesting performance where you do that. And he, he just says that and all the other characters look at him and can see him, but just choose to ignore the weirdo who's standing there. <laughs> So, let us uh, come to recommendations. If you liked A Midsummer Night's Dream, obviously I would recommend other, or I could recommend other Shakespeare plays. But actually what I would like to recommend is something that also connects to last week's podcast, where I recommended Neil Gaiman's The Sandman series. And actually one very interesting chapter of that series is about A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a comic version of the play, and not just any play. It takes the conceit that Shakespeare wrote that original story, as requested by the Sandman, for the Fae. So we have a play about Titania and Oberon, and we have Titania, Oberon, and Puck as the audience of the play. And it's an interesting story, not just because of that conceit, but also because the Fae, as they're portrayed in The Sandman, are actually much more alien and threatening as they might seem in Midsummer Night's Dream. So we have that connection. But it's also really nicely done to see, again, this meta-theatrical effect in a visual story. So if you like The Midsummer Night's Dream and want to see a bit more about its complexities and its thematic connections, the issue of A Midsummer Night's Dream can be found in the collection Dream Country of the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. I have another recommendation of something I haven't actually read, but that I've sort of stumbled across. There's a herd of cows in here all of a sudden. 
it's, I haven't read it yet, but it is something that I've come across whilst preparing for this episode. And that is a fantasy novel called A Midsummer Tempest. It's an alternate history novel where characters from A Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest intervene in the English Civil War. And, in fact, the protagonist of the novel is Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who is my all-time favorite person in history ever. And uh, so this is just a perfect mixture of Shakespearean characters, magic, alternate history, and my, my dearest darling from history. So, yes, I will definitely seek out this novel and see if it's as pulpy and trashy and amazing as I hope it is. Let us just briefly, because this is our Shakespeare episode, which comes out on the Bard's birthday, April 23rd, talk about Shakespeare. And I especially want to ask you, do you think that our listeners should read Shakespeare? Should they dare to read this difficult 16th, 17th century language in the original? I would say yes, definitely. Just because what makes Shakespeare so interesting and why he has become the perhaps greatest writer of all times is that he manages to write for so many different people. Obviously, then you need to understand, at the time at least, who these people were. So he wrote for an audience that consisted of noblemen, of merchants, but also of low-life street thugs, you might say. So that explains why there are so many different things and different topics in these plays that tragedies have comic elements, that comedies have tragic elements, that characters sometimes seem to be put together from very different texts. And for that to understand and to start, maybe, yeah, it takes a bit of time to actually understand the historical background, but then it makes it so much more worthwhile when you understand that there's still universal elements from all over the place that still work for many different audiences nowadays. For example, the mechanicals in this play, which reminded us of the people we worked with in our amateur dramatics. Or the young lovers who, no matter whether it's mythical Athens, 16th century London, or 21st century Heidelberg, are always foolish, and yet you can't really hate them for it. I would also like to say, with regards to the language, if you are worried, don't be. The language is not hard. It's early modern English, but still modern English. Here and there, there's an archaic word that you might have to look up, but usually those are in the footnotes. And if you are able to understand this podcast, you're most likely able to read Shakespeare as well. So that was our episode on A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. And if you want to know more about what else is going to be on the agenda for next week's, have a look at our homepage. As usual, it's outsideofadockcast.com. If you want to tell us how wrong we were thinking that the lovers are foolish or that Bottom is a complex character, then... Like us on Facebook, give us feedback there, rate us on iTunes, where you can also just subscribe to our podcast, and you can write us an email at outsideofadoccast at gmail.com. And if you want to see some interesting posts and pictures related to a Midsummer Night Stream, for example, you can also now subscribe to our Tumblr, which is outsideofdoccast.tumblr.com. 
So that was our episode on the Bard. I suspect we will probably return to him at some point in the future, but Christian, what is in store for us next week? I'm afraid it's all darkness and not as much um, comedy. It's American Psycho by Brady Snellis. Yay! Yay. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Ingmar Bergman did a film version called Smile of the Midsummer Night. I th- no. I should mention things I have no idea about what they're called. But well, at least... What, what, what are we doing here if we're not are talking about things we know nothing about? Again, don't tell them our secrets.